Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the, sh the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. There was once a woman who worked for a PR firm. She was waiting for an international flight. And while she was waiting, she did what many of us do when we're waiting uh, for something. She went on Twitter and uh, thought she would send out a couple uh, joking tweets. One of those was uh, something that could be I guess in the best of circumstances, it would be considered terribly unwise. In the best of circumstances. And as we all know, the internet is not the best of circumstances. This woman, after a few hours, uh, didn't see any response. She only had 170 followers. So nobody was responding, and uh, her flight was ready, so she turned her phone off. She boarded her flight, and she took a nap went to sleep. 11 hours later, she was the most hated person on the internet. Thousands and thousands of people were decrying her deplorable words. And thousands and thousands of people were calling for her to be immediately fired because a PR firm person should not speak like this. Thousands and thousands of people, uh, as she was flying, uh, this 11-hour flight, were waiting with bated breath for her to land in this sort of gleeful, perverse excitement of what would happen when she landed. And when she landed, there were people waiting with cameras, and they took pictures. This woman, her life was ruined by this experience, and she cried for weeks afterwards. One writer reflecting on this experience as a participant, a contrite participant, uh, 
said this, the collective fury felt righteous, powerful, and effective. It felt as if hierarchies were being dismantled, as if justice were being democratized. So, I've got a question. Did the people, how did they know how to be righteous? By assuming a posture of superiority, of anger, and of judgment. So I've got a question. Do you want to be righteous? <laughs> how, how do you think that happens? I'll tell you one thing. It does not happen the way that these people wanted it to. Because J James, Jesus' brother, says in his letter that the anger of human beings does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger isn't the way. Comparison isn't the way. So we're considering this morning, as we, as we continue through our series on the armor of God, we're looking at the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. And so we're saying in some way, in some way that we want to be righteous. We have to know how. So we're going to look at Paul's words and consider two things. First thing is the problem of righteousness. And the second thing is the promise of righteousness. So first, problem, then promise. Um, right at the start, I need to say something. Um, somebody like me, uh, as one of my mentors would say, uh, a God talker, uh, with a tie, talking about the righteousness of God. Just for some of you, maybe a lot of you, that already puts your guard up. Because you've been there. You know people who've done that. And the way that they responded afterward did not at all reflect the righteousness of God. And we've been hurt by that. So I'm treading lightly here. I don't speak as somebody who is um, found, you know, I've perfected righteousness or whatever. And I, I pray for God's mercy as I interact with you. But maybe something that could help is if we consider a definition. If we at least know what we're talking about, then maybe we can enter into this with some level of comfort and we can consider this together. So um, here's my, my definition. And I think I've got it from the Bible. So I hope that this is something we can accept. Um, so to be righteous, according to Scripture, is to be morally and spiritually aligned with God's covenant, with his gracious promise of relationship. So aligned. The opposite of, of righteousness, then, is not um, like actual goodness or actual humility. Like that person's righteous, but this person's actually good. No, the opposite of righteousness for the Bible is crookedness. It's not being lined. And so we want to find a way to be lined up like a, a carpenter, lining up two boards so that they can fit together perfectly. We want to be like that. We want to be aligned with God's purposes. And the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, when he talks about the armor of God in general, actually, he is bringing in, as we've been reading, um, texts from the prophet Isaiah. And so... I'm going to invite you uh, 
to turn there. Um, so in your uh, bulletins, there's the Isaiah text, but you can also pull it up in your Bibles. Um, that would be great if you want to pull up an app or do whatever. Um, because uh, this phrase, breastplate of righteousness, is coming directly from the text that we read in Isaiah. And in order to understand what Paul's doing, we should also understand what Isaiah is doing. So Isaiah, when he's looking, uh, when he's writing this uh, text in chapter 59, there's a, a situation that's going on. There, it's got two sides to it. There's an internal side and an external side in Isaiah's time. So the internal is that God's people are in a bad place. They are full of sin, and especially injustice. It's one of the chief things that if you read the chapters before 59, so 57, 58, you're going to see this is a thing that God is upset about with them. So that's the internal thing that's going on with them. But the external is that they are facing an enemy. So the Assyrian Empire is ready to destroy them. So there's internal, external. And when we look at Isaiah 59 and the, the context around breastplate of righteousness, here's what we're going to see. There are two sides to the problem of righteousness. So if you'll look with me in uh, verse 14, the first verse that's printed in your bulletin, it says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. What do you notice about how righteousness is talked about here? It's treated like a person, right? A person who is not safe, who's not allowed to go into a city, who's being barred from entry into a place. A person who, even by turning away, just not even all the way, maybe, just away from injustice, is putting themselves at risk. So this is the first thing. The problem of righteousness, part one, is that righteousness is risky. It's risky. To be a righteous person in an unjust world, in a world full of evil and sin, is risky. It could get you in trouble. It could get you fired. It could get you crucified. So righteousness is risky. Earlier in that text, um, so it's before what's printed in your bulletins, so listen, and if you have a, bull, a Bible, you can look at that, but in, in verse 8, we hear this. The way of peace, they, the people of God, do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. Crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. I want to point out one thing is that it turns from a third person, they, to a first person, we. So we're, we're already moving in a good direction. But justice, righteousness, is far from us. We'll actually hear God's verdict of that in verse 2 of that chapter, where God says, it's not that I'm far from you. It's that sin has come between us. That's the problem. That's why we can't be in this relationship. So if the first problem of, if the first side of that problem of righteousness is that righteousness is risky, 
The second side is that it's unreachable because we are tainted by sin. We're affected in all sorts of ways. If you've tried to be righteous for like five minutes, you figure this out. Because you try to do the right thing and you discover, oh, I've got really mixed motives about that. Or I thought that that would be the right thing, but it actually hurt that person. Or you do any number of things and you find that righteousness is actually just really difficult. Um, there's a really good, uh, insightful um, example of this, which I'm just going to warn you, it's going to hurt. We're going to be okay, but it's going to hurt for a little bit. So in uh, the novel Jaber Crow, which I know some of you have read by Wendell Berry, uh, and if you haven't read it, I would recommend it, it there's a character who's uh, the title character, Jaber. He is a barber. He's lived his entire life in uh, Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, and he's lived most of his life in a small town called Port William. And he's a good man and a hard worker and, and all these things, he's very virtuous in a lot of ways. And uh, there's another man who is, uh, over the years, his name's Troy, he's given Jaber reason after reason after reason to dislike him. Because where Jaber is kind and humble, Troy is rude and boastful. Where Jaber is appreciative of uh, small business and is comfortable with not a lot, Troy always wants more. And to top it off, the woman that Jaber is in love with is married to Troy. So Jaber has a lot of reason to dislike him. But he's still a barber, so he still cuts hair. And at one point, there's a scene towards the end of the book um, where it's set during the Vietnam War at this point. And Troy is uh, very angry about war protesters. And he wants them to be rounded up and put in front of the enemy. And then whoever shot who, it'd be all to the good. And then we read this. So the book is written in Jaber's perspective. He says, there was a little pause after that. Nobody wanted to try to top it. It was hard to do, but I quit cutting hair and I looked at Troy. I said, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Troy jerked up his head and widened his eyes at me. Where did you get that crap? I said, Jesus Christ. And Troy said, oh. And then Jaber reflects on that moment, and he says this. It would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except that I did not love Troy. <laughs> so here's the hurt, okay, ready? We laugh at that because we've been there. So where is it? I mean, I'm thinking of my own, I'm a theology nerd. I'm a Bible guy. I love being right about that. And so it's so great if I get an opportunity to be right when somebody else is wrong. But that is self-righteousness. It's a characteristic damage of our attempts to be righteous. Is we, when we're trying, when we're really trying to be right, and we end up being self-righteous. So, where are you like that? Think about it. Where are you right? Really, really right. And other people are wrong. So wrong. Do you find it hard to love them? The quietness in the room is making me think, yes. So, 
Here's the thing. On our own, the problem of righteousness is insurmountable. We're feeling it right now. It's, it's impossible. So this is the good news. God comes, and he makes a promise. So we're going to turn to the promise of righteousness. So when we keep looking at our Isaiah text, we see um, that God does three things in the text that's printed in your bulletin. The first thing in verse 15 is that he sees the injustice and unrighteousness. So if we just take a step back, this is going to sound really obvious, but if God is able to look out there at unrighteousness, what does that mean he is? He's righteous. So God is standing outside of unrighteousness and injustice, and he's, no, he's looking at it. And unlike what we do when we're feeling self-righteous, he doesn't just stay distant, but he draws near. This is the second thing. He, he comes and he repays. When we look at uh, verse 18, it says it three times that he's going to repay, he's going to offer repayment, he's going to render repayment. Which is to say that what's unrighteous, he's going to correct. What's unjust, he will make just. And um, here's the thing. We just talked about this. This is hard for us to be righteous. So how are we not also undone in that? And it's the third thing that answers that. The third thing is that God redeems. So verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. And here we get to step back into Ephesians. And we get to consider the breastplate of righteousness. And I think based on what we've seen, and especially in uh, verse 16 and 17 of Isaiah 59, God puts on righteousness as a breastplate. So when Paul is exhorting us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, whose breastplate is it? Is it ours? No. It's God's. We're putting on God's righteousness. Because if I put on my self-righteousness as a breastplate, it'd be like a cardboard box. It would block precisely nothing. But Christ's righteousness is perfect. And this is actually um, something that the Christian tradition has a lot to say, and the, elsewhere in the Bible has a lot to say. So in the same letter as Paul is talking about these uh, the armor of God, he also talks about putting on Christ, which uh, he says, uh, we put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. So we put on Christ's armor. Um, you've got, uh, Bill pointed out the uh, quote from Calvin in the beginning page of your reflections on your bulletin. Um, and I'd invite you to, to reflect on that uh, later today. Um, feel free to, to meditate on it. I think it's a wonderful passage from Calvin. Um, but I wanted to, to prove to you that it's not just like a Reformed thing, but it's a Christian thing. So there's a second century letter that we have that uh, we don't know who wrote it or really much about it. We have this letter. And it's called uh, the Epistle to Diognetus. And in that letter, we read this. There's a, 
substantial paragraph that I'll read, and I think you'll be okay with it because it's good. He says this, but when our unrighteousness was fulfilled and it had been made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment, and death were to be expected, then the season arrived during which God had decided to reveal at last his goodness and power of the surpassing kindness and love of God. He does this thing, by the way, like parentheses of just marveling and praising in the middle of this. So that's what that is. He did not hate us or reject us, or bear a grudge against us. Instead, he was patient and forbearing. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He, gave up his, he himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Having demonstrated, therefore, in the former time the powerlessness of our nature to obtain life, and having now revealed the Savior's power to save even the powerless, he willed that for both these reasons we should believe in his goodness and regard him as nurse, father, teacher, counselor, healer, mind, light, food, and clothing. That's an interesting way to end that, isn't it? <laughs> Except, what are we clothed in but Christ's righteousness? This is the point of the promise of righteousness, is that the righteousness belongs to Jesus. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, we're putting on Christ. We're not putting on our self-righteousness because it wouldn't protect us. The whole point of the armor of God is to help us to stand firm against the enemy. How can we have any hope of standing firm in our own self-righteousness. That's one takeaway I want to give. I have another one, though, because I think uh, many of you need to hear this. So, and maybe this is hubris on my part to assume that you do, but listen, and we'll see. So, many of us struggle to believe that we really are righteous. And given the struggle of, of trying to do it yourself, it makes a lot of sense. But according to this, according to our text, according to Paul and the whole Bible, the righteousness uh, that we put on as Christ's really is ours. So I want to look as many of you in the eye as I can and say, in Christ, you really are righteous. You really are. There's not an asterisk about that. You really are righteous. And it does wondrous things uh, to our self-righteousness <laughs> to remember that. Um, I, I wanted to give you uh, a couple of tools um, before closing. Um, one of them is I, I just think that our response here needs to be that we, we pray for the faith to really believe that our righteousness is in Christ. I think to pray that often and to remember that often is important. And so one of the ways that uh, I would say, I'd recommend to do that is um, a prayer 
from a fifth century monk uh, in Ireland who we all know as St. Patrick. Um, he had a prayer that was called the breastplate of St. Patrick. And there's a point in which uh, he prays this, and I think this could be just, if you want to put this on your mirror every morning or something, um, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. So the picture is that Jesus is our protection. Every angle, every conceivable angle. And um, as I said earlier, this does marvelous things for our self-righteousness, to remember that our righteousness doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from Jesus. And uh, I want to give you a, a literary example of that, because I like books, so, you know, I have to do it. So there's a story uh, by an author that uh, maybe many of you know, or some of you probably don't. Uh, her name's Flannery O'Connor, and she has a, a short story called Revelation. And it's set in a doctor's way. She's married to Claude, and there's also some other people. There's a well-dressed lady who Mrs. Turpin immediately attaches herself to because there's somebody who's like her. There's also a teenage girl whose name is Mary Grace. It's important. And she's reading a book, a very heavy book, on human development. And so during this short story, Mrs. Turpin is talking with the other people and uh, doing a really good job of broadcasting her own righteousness, her self-righteousness, how blessed she is and how good of a disposition she has. And she doesn't complain and she's really blessed to have her husband and all of these things. And with every single sentence that she says, Mary Grace cringes and coils up like a spring ready to shoot off. And uh, it begins to come to a head. Um, so at one point, Mrs. Turpin says, if there's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have gotten clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. So Mary Grace has thrown the book, literally, at Mrs. Turpin. And uh, her head clears, she gets back up, and it says this, there is no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her, knew her in some intense and personal way, beyond time and place and condition. What do you got to say to me? She asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. So that's the revelation. Later on, Mrs. Turpin has been shook by this experience. She's been disrupted completely because she was convinced that she was blessed and righteous. How could this happen? Because uh, I didn't read this part, but Mary Grace didn't just throw a book at her, but she also jumped on her and like started attacking her. They had to pull her off. So, you know, you could say traumatized by this experience, Mrs. Turpin is wondering how to process it. And she eventually goes on a walk uh, outside of her house. Um, and she looks up 
into the sky. And it says this, a visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the, from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. So she's seeing a vision in this moment of this sort of like light bridge to heaven. And in that moment, she's like zooming in, squinting in the vision at the people who are walking on, uh, on their way from earth to heaven. And she notices that, uh, and I won't say these words because Flannery O'Connor is very blunt about the kinds of things she thinks about these people. Um, she sees all the worst, the dregs of society are, are leading that procession. And then it says this, and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Later on in the woods, around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. So this is a warning. If we're going to believe that our righteousness is in Christ and we're going to put on that breastplate of righteousness as we put on Christ, there are ways in which God might uh, disrupt us. I hope it's not by getting a book thrown at you. But this is the kind of change that is required and it's invited uh, to participate in. And I'll close with this. The only person for whom righteousness was not unreachable still faced the risk of righteousness because it got him crucified. So Jesus, if you think about the picture of the armor of God, Jesus was not wearing armor on the cross. He was naked on the cross. And if he was wearing a breastplate of righteousness, it would have protected his side from being pierced. But for us, for our salvation, he went to the cross. He took on our unrighteousness so that we could become the righteousness of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you make us truly righteous and that the breastplate of righteousness is not made up of our own good deeds or the best we can offer, but that it's made up of the righteousness that you have for us. You've purchased it on the cross for us. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith to believe that and help us each day to remember that our righteousness is in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.